Thanks for listening to the Junior Ziggler podcast. If you are crazy enough to want more of his content, check out the link in the description of this podcast. That link can get you to his book, his socials, and another podcast. Thanks for hitting play. Here's Junior. So this right here is not a counseling session for me. Uh, If it were, we'd be here quite a while. But in the spirit of authenticity, I want to let you in on on a little bit of my psyche. One of my greatest fears, and I think this is probably true of most guys, they just don't want to admit it, but one of my greatest fears is inadequacy. It's a very big fear of mine. I just, I don't want to be inadequate, whether it's being an inadequate husband or father or pastor or friend. You may be like, Junior, that's an insecurity. Yeah, I guess so. It's a fear actually that that I don't mind anymore. I used to really struggle with this a lot, uh, but I don't mind it anymore because it, it can really drive you. But probably like you, I can think back to moments and seasons in my life where I felt very inadequate. Like, for example, when I was a a young dad, you know, my wife had just had babies. I felt very inadequate. Like my wife produced babies from her body and then fed those babies with her body. I'm sitting on the couch, like nothing to offer. I was convinced that like my kids didn't like me because anytime I would hold them, they they would scream. In fact, so much so that we have like accountability broken up like on our staff at church, just a little different accountability groups. And I remember sitting with Jordan, this was years ago, sitting with Jordan, just being like, I'm, I'm an inadequate dad. I'm just, I'm not good at being a dad. I'm really failing at this. Or when I wrote my first book, sent my, my first manuscript to an editor and the editor wrote me back and they said, not quite sure we've seen anyone with this level of grammar try to write a book before. <laughs> it's like, sheesh, not even an author and already failing miserably. Or I'll tell you, anytime, I, I get up to preach, not anytime, most of the time I get up to preach. I think back to when I was in seventh grade. When I was in seventh grade, my youth group entered into this, this competition with other youth groups. And it was a very weird church competition, but it, you know, it was the 90s. And Christian culture in the 90s was just, it was a different breed. But big gathering of like all these different youth groups and these youth groups would compete against each other. But not in like a cool way, like in sports, in things like Bible quizzing or a singing competition, or a preaching competition. And I was a pastor's kid, so I couldn't get out of this. Like, I had to do this. And I didn't know what to choose. Like, you know, I didn't want to sing, can't sing, didn't want to take a test. So I signed up to preach. I figured, you know, my dad, he can help me out. Um, If my dad can do it, why can't I? And I crafted my sermon meticulously, and I practiced it over and over. And I felt very confident about this sermon. You know, like, come on, preaching has to be in my blood. The day came... My youth group, we drove from up in Wisconsin to Hobart, Indiana. In fact, here's my youth group right here. I'm, I'm on the, uh, the way right. That's, that's me over here looking spiffy, right? All decked out, ready to, ready to like slay. I'm just ready to preach, ready to go. Uh, get into this, this big competition event. My name is called to get up in front of everyone. I got up in front of the judges. The room is filled with my youth group and other youth groups. And I preached my first sermon. And out of everyone in that competition, I got the lowest score. I got last place. That's right, Bridge. Your lead teaching pastor got last place in a preaching competition. You are scraping the bottom of the barrel with me right here. My friends, they all got invited into the next round to go to like regionals and go to another competition. I was not invited. I was invited to go and sit and watch. And I remember feeling so much embarrassment that day. Just getting in the van with the rest of the youth group, quiet ride home for me, just looking out the window. My friends really loved hearing that I got last place. I got teased a good amount in the way. And I pretended like I didn't care, but oh, I really did care. 
And it's, it's interesting how those moments of failure can, can really stick with you. Those feelings of inadequacy, they, they really stick with you. Um, even paralyze you from trying again and taking another shot and putting yourself out there. Like even if you have some success, I bet you've experienced this. You'll have some success, but then you, you almost get like this haunting like whisper as you're experiencing success, like you, you don't deserve this. And it keeps you from what God has for you in the future. Just recently, I was invited to speak at um, where I went to college and I was the guest speaker at chapel. My college degree, I don't think I've ever said this before, my college degree was withheld from me for a year because I didn't attend chapel. I would sign into chapel and I would just leave. And then I got caught. It was was terrible of me. I'm not saying that was good. It was very (laughs) terrible of me. And so the university, they, they held my degree for a year. And, um, but then they invited me to come speak in the chapel that I never attended. And, and before speaking, I just remember, I remember just feeling so much guilt right before speaking, sitting in the front row thinking, what am I doing here? Like, I shouldn't be here. And I bet you know the feeling. It's a tough feeling to shake. And Jesus's disciple, Peter, had to feel that feeling in today's text. This might just be what you really need to read. Grab a Bible. We're going to be in Acts chapter three. Acts chapter three is page 911 in the Bibles and the chairs. We encourage you to grab one of those Bibles. Acts chapter three. We've been in this book of Acts uh, lately, but just been going chapter by chapter and going through the whole book for a few months here, maybe even into several months. We'll see where the Lord leads. But Acts chapter three. Let me pray. We'll jump in. God, we do thank you for, for the words that we hold in our hand. We thank you that you love us enough to give us these words. May we really feel the weight of this moment right now, that these are your words. We believe they are true. We receive what they say. May we humbly submit ourselves to what you have for us. You will speak. May we listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as the lens of Scripture zooms into Acts chapter 3, He stares at his thatched ceiling as his eyes adjust to the morning light that spills into his room. He's in no rush. There's really nowhere for him to go. He slowly sits up and peels the blanket away and stares at his atrophied legs. Though he's learned to live life the best way he can, he can't help but think how much different life would be if his legs worked. He's not sure which is worse his inability to walk or that deep feeling that he's a drain on this society. Any money that he's had, it's never felt earned. It's always been given. He's a charity case. But what gets him out of bed each morning are his friends. He has special friends. Friends who have never gotten anything from him, yet every morning they show up, they pick him up, and they prop him up and hope that he can collect enough for a meal that night. And as he peers out, the window from his bed. It looks like a normal day. He sighs and grabs a cloth from the side table to wash his face. What he doesn't know is that at this very moment, two other men are also getting ready for their day. Paths will cross and somehow by tonight, this forgotten beggar will be the topic of conversation at every dinner table across the city. Luke brings us in verse one. It says, now Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer the ninth hour. So ninth hour, that does not mean nine o'clock. Uh, the Jews saw the start of the day at the uh, at really sunrise. So roughly 6 a.m., making 9 a.m. the third hour. So do the math here. What would be the ninth hour? 
Three o'clock. Oh, you guys are good. You're on it. 3 p.m. So Luke is telling us it's three o'clock. This would have been the second out of three times throughout the day that the Jews would gather up to pray. It's a fantastic practice, by the way. One that I've been trying to get into just for, for myself, like set alarms throughout the day just to get on my knees and, and, and pray. There's a few church staff that, that do this, and my dad actually started it. But they'll set, like I said, they'll set their phone alarms, you know, throughout the day as reminders to, to pray. And, and so there's a lot of times I'll just be sitting in a meeting and three o'clock, all these phones just start buzzing. It's like, time to pray, time to pray, time to pray. And they'll snooze it for after the meeting. But it's, it's a great practice because how often do we start our day with the best intentions? Maybe you're able like, you know, you, you get along with God and you're, and you're praying, you're praying over your day. And you're like, man, I really want to be a blessing today. But then you get into traffic and traffic like just ticks you off. And then that first meeting that you're in, it, it puts you on edge by 11 o'clock. You are not doing as well as you were doing at 6 a.m. Prayer built into the day can really re- recalibrate. And so that will, that's what was happening throughout the city of Jerusalem. The gates into the temple would see this influx of traffic of those praying. And Peter and John would have been one of those devout uh, devout Jews that have come in to pray. Verse 2, it says, And a man, lame from birth, was being carried. Now look at that. From birth. Never walked. You imagine what his legs would have looked like. And Luke's going to get into that more in just a second. But we're talking skin and bone. Now if you write in your Bibles, you, uh, you can circle man there and write... 40, 40 years old. He was at least 40 years old. You'd be like, Junior, how, where is that? How do you know that? I don't know. It just seems like a really good age to put him. No, of course not. Uh, Luke tells us in the next chapter, in chapter four, verse 22, Luke writes that this guy um, was, was over 40 years old. So his legs have not worked for over 40 years. Now, luckily he has some good friends because Luke continues on, whom they lay daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering into, into the temple. So first century readers, as they're reading this, they would have read this and immediately they know exactly what Luke is talking about. They can picture it. It'd be like us, it'd be like us reading, you know, while I was down by the Hancock Tower next to the Drake Hotel. Like, okay, most of us can kind of picture where that at. We can, we can picture the Drake sign. We can picture the tower. We can picture the intersection there, you know, the beach right there. Problem is we look at this, we're like, we can't picture this. Yet still, Luke is inviting us. So let's go to first century Jerusalem just to kind of get our bearings. And uh, I'm going to give you just a, a quick tour of the city. It's a free tour. How about that? Okay. No tips. I'm really giving you a deal. No tips. We're just going to go to Jerusalem. Here's Jerusalem, first century. Welcome to first century uh, Jerusalem. Uh, here's the Temple Mount right here. Uh, the old, uh, actually, this Temple Mount would have been the main event. I love what, I think it was Josephus who wrote, the Temple Mount was like a diamond set in a ring on, on this mountain city. It was just like, it, this was the main event. The plaza around the Temple Mount would have been where places for crowds to gather for teaching. Jesus would have taught crowds in here. You know, the story of when Jesus overturns the tables, that would have happened in this plaza as well. To the left of this would be called the Old City of David. In fact, there's a lot of excavation going on there right now in Jerusalem, and it is a blast to, to walk through there. Uh, if you've been to Israel with the bridge, we've, we've walked through there. Um, but this was named after King David. This would have, at the time of Jesus, this would have been a very big marketplace. Now, at the very end would have been the Pool of Siloam, where Jesus healed another lame man. So again, if you've gone to Israel with the bridge, you've sat on those steps of, of that pool. When Jesus is tried uh, before Herod, it would have happened over here. That's where that would have happened. Some traditions have the tomb and the cross happening in this. And we're not quite sure. There's some debate about that. But this is traditionally where, where we believe Jesus would have died. 
But as you look around Jerusalem, as we're looking around first century Jerusalem, you're gonna notice there's a lot of gates throughout this city. In fact, there's even more than this. But the big question then becomes is like, okay, Luke's telling us a story. He's wanting us to picture it. Which gate is Luke talking about? Because technically, there is no gate formerly known as the beautiful gate. However, as there's been a lot more um, writings and excavations, they, they found that there, ha- there was a gate that people had nicknamed the beautiful gate. And it's the gate going from the temple plaza into the temple. In fact, Josephus, who was a historian, wrote that this, this gate was taller. It was pure brass, taller than 75 feet. Just like a wonder to behold. And so Luke is saying it's right here. This is where all of this goes down. Also, worth pointing out before we hit verse three, worth pointing out, this beggar sits at this gate every day for 40 years. That's what Luke writes. Think about this. Jesus walked through that gate many, many times. Jesus likely walked through by this guy multiple times and didn't heal him. And I know that doesn't really sit well, but Jesus didn't heal everyone. Jesus did not come for the sole purpose of healing our physical sickness, but healing our spiritual sickness, our greatest need. But I imagine Jesus walking by this guy and thinking, not yet, not yet. Now's not the time. I'm saving him for Peter and John. And that day is gonna be fun to watch. And now the day has come. Verse three, it says, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Now, are you still in the city? Because again, Luke's, Luke's trying to get us to imagine this. Are you still in the city? Are you picturing what's going on? Like there he lays with his back against the gatepost. Periodically, a flood of people would, would shuffle through. Alms, alms, please, alms. He's repeated those words every day for decades, says it in his sleep sometimes. He struggles with eye contact ever since he was a boy. Like in this society, in this condition, it's hard to confidently look at someone, look him in the eye from, from the ground. And so he stares at those plaza cobblestones. Alms, alms, please, alms. Peter directed his gaze at him as a John and said, look at us. This seems a little bit harsh. Maybe it was. I mean, Peter was known to be brash, a little brash at times. That was something that Jesus was working um, working on him with. I'm not sure that this is brash though. Peter wants eye contact from this man. Why? Well, research has found that there's a lot of power in eye contact. Eye contact does so much. It's why I, I, I try to teach my children to look, hey, when you're talking to adults, you look at them in the eye. Eye contact holds attention. Eye contact, um, it also stimulates memory, allowing you to remember more when you have eye contact. I think Peter's request for eye contact goes deeper than that though. Eye contact is a form of respect. You show and you earn respect through eye contact. It creates trust. It shows affection. Here's a man sitting against a gatepost. He's used to people not giving him eye contact. Vast majority of people tend to just kind of look over him as they walk through the gate. Even those who flip him a coin now and then still just kind of look beyond him and go into the temple. That's why Peter says here, I think that you are worth having eye contact with. Look at me. I want you to remember what's about to happen. I want your full attention. Look at us. Man's heart, no doubt jumps. He fixed his attention on them. In fact, the, the original Greek wording there is like full attention, like tunnel vision attention. His anticipation builds, expecting to receive something from them. Maybe a, a generous gift. But the air is let out of the balloon. And Peter says, I have no silver and gold, 
But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And it's here I wonder if there were some butterflies in Peter. Is Peter remembering the time he failed? Peter having flashbacks back to those past failures? Because those past failures really stick with us. I mean, it's one of the most iconic stories in scripture. You tell it to little kids. You know, the disciples are out on a boat and the wind is blowing and the boat creaks as it shifts around on the waves. Jesus is walking on the water. Peter, the bold one of the group, asks Jesus, can I come out too? Peter steps on the water, takes another step, but then Peter begins to sink and begins to drown. Luckily, Jesus is there to pick him up. And that's not a memory that you easily forget. It's like, Peter, what if this ends up like you walking on water? I mean, most people don't just like forget that memory. Most people aren't so confident to give it another go. Like, Peter, Jesus isn't here to pick you up on this one. And I think Peter would say, no, Jesus isn't here, but the Holy Spirit is in me. And so I can say, rise up and walk. And it's this very moment that teaches us something powerful in scripture. Lesson number one from a beggar, failure doesn't disqualify you from being used by God. And my goodness, this is just plastered all throughout scripture. The giants of our faith had haunting failures. Abraham had a baby with his servant girl. Moses killed a man. King David had a massive scandal cover-up. All of those men were used by God after their failure. Now, don't get me wrong. There are still consequences. There are still timeouts. There are seasons where you have to walk through the fire. There are times where you have to be removed from positions. But the cross means we get a do-over. And if you're like me, another do-over. And then another one. I think sometimes we can be so hard on ourselves. And, and sure, we deserve it. We screw up, we hurt others, we make a mess. We deserve discipline. But this is often when the enemy will then show up and lies about our future. And so we start feeling defeated. Hey, I messed it up. To get back on my feet, I'd look like a hypocrite. I deserve to have no future being used by God. And God would say, yes, that's true. You don't deserve that, but don't you dare forget about the cross. You don't need to beat yourself up. Jesus already took that beating. That memory that haunts you was nailed to the cross. Don't devalue the cross by believing you're some exception to the forgiveness that flows from Jesus Christ. Get back up, get back at it. Past failure doesn't disqualify you from being used by God. It's like watching, watching my kids learn to walk is the best. You remember that with like, if you parents, remember that with like kids, maybe you have friends with like little kids, just walking them, watching them walk is just, it, it's the best. It, you know, they, they get on two feet and they'll hold the furniture and just kind of sway back and forth. They're like a drunk adult. They're just like, you know, they're swaying back and forth. And, and, then, and then a while later, they'll kind of take a, they'll take a, a risk and, and kind of step away from the furniture, like one step and then two step and then plop right down in their diaper butt. And, and when our kids, when they take a step away from the furniture, what do we do? Cheer them on, right? Yeah, yeah, you got it. Yeah, you can do it. And even when they fall, it's like, ah, that's okay. Try again. What kind of dad would I be if I gave up on my kids when they fell? One-year-old falls. Well, you're an idiot. <laughs> Must get that from your mom's side because my side, we're, we're a family of walkers, okay? I got walking in my blood, so might as well just stay down there. I mean, it's ridiculous. It'd be a terrible dad. So what makes us think that our father is that way with us? 
That's a nasty lie that we've believed from the enemy. He knows we fail. He knows we're going to fall. That's why he sent Jesus Christ. And yeah, like any good father, he's going, he disciplines consequences. Absolutely. He got fire to walk through sometimes. But as our dad, he says, I'm going to walk with you through that. This, this is going to hurt. But I'm not giving up on you. And I'm not giving up on your future. I think Peter's confidence here at the beginning of chapter three, this isn't just like something that Peter's born with, you know, oh, Peter's Mr. Confidence. No, I think Peter's confidence is more refined than that. He saw how Jesus treated him after he failed to walk on water. And he experienced Jesus's forgiveness after he deserted Jesus that night that Jesus was crucified. Peter's taking the step because he knows just how wonderful his dad is who walks with him. And you have that father too. Past failures don't disqualify you from future use. I mean, really, to be candid, and maybe it seems so silly to think back to like when I was in seventh grade, but I often do, just before preaching, just like thinking about that last place moment, riding home, thinking like, I will never, ever preach again. Never gonna put myself out there. Never gonna do that last place. And over the years, I've just learned like God loves using failures. And I like to think that I'm just proof that God likes to use failures. Like looking back, I don't know where the first place preacher is, but I do know where the last place preacher is. And it's not because of his ability, but because God is great and his power is shown in our weakness. And there's a lot of weakness in last place. And so maybe just maybe his power can be shown in greater ways because I have a lot of weakness. Do you have any past failures that are haunting you? You're in good company. God's win is greater than your failure. His win is greater than your loss. I love this text. Rise up and walk. Man, to hear those words echo off the stone plaza that day. To watch heads snap around and turn. What's going to happen here? To see the confused look on the man's face and the beggar's face as he leans against the gatepost. He took him by the right hand. Peter took the beggar by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And this is such a fascinating verse in scripture because in the original Greek, Luke, um, Luke would have wrote this in Greek. Luke uses Greek words in this verse that don't appear anywhere else in scripture because Luke by trade is a physician. So he uses formal medical terminology of that day for joints snapping into place and connective tissue forming and muscles instantly being strengthened. Like this part of the story would have fascinated a, a doctor. And so in this text, Luke is really just like geeking out about this. Like, man, you should have been there. Like this is, this is how it would have happened. Here are 40, 40 plus year old legs that have never been stood on, skin and bone. This man has never been able to step away from a couch and take a step. And in front of everyone's eyes, his legs are strengthened. Silver and gold have I none, but what I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That's an amazing moment. In the year 1260, Thomas Aquinas was invited to visit Pope Innocent IV at the Vatican. And the Pope was giving Thomas Aquinas a tour around the Vatican, you know, the unbelievable, just the wealth that is in the Vatican blows your mind, treasures that they have accumulated over the years. And so the Pope joked to Thomas, he said, well, unlike the first Pope, referring to Peter, as Catholics see Peter as, as being the first Pope, he said, unlike the first Pope, I can no longer say silver and gold have I none. 
Thomas Aquinas replied, with all due respect, your eminence, neither can you say in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. (laughs) A lot of money, but where's the power? Peter had nothing in his pockets, but there is power in the name of Jesus Christ. And in front of everyone, those legs were made well. And it gives us our second lesson from the beggar. Rather than asking God for what we want, ask for what he wants. Because what he wants is better. Like you see it in this text. You know that that morning as his friends, you know, propped him, carrying him, actually, as they're carrying him from his place of residence to the gate, you know, as he's making his way through the streets, he knows what he needs to make by the end of the day to have a meal that night. He's got an agenda. I need to have this amount to have a meal by tonight. And in that moment, God wanted more for him than he wanted for himself. In the same way, I wonder how many people, good God-fearing people, you, you, me, we pray over our days and God is, God is thinking, that's great, but I want more for you. Why don't you surrender that agenda for your day? Let me blow your mind with my agenda. So many of us, we are the beggar on our way to the gate. Hey, if I could just finish the day, you know, with the kids alive, that'll be good. And if I can just get this task done, if I could just make that sale, you know, okay, that's fine. But don't you forget that you have a God who's far more powerful than you even know. It's like what C.S. Lewis wrote. C.S. Lewis wrote, we are like ignorant children who, want, who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And he continues on writing. He's saying, we as human beings are far too easily pleased. God wants to do so much through us. But like a beggar, we're pleased with so little. If I can just make this much, if I can just get this date, God says, okay, yeah, or whatever. That's mud pies. I want to do so much more through you. Ask for my will, not yours. So maybe our prayers need to change a little bit. The cry of our heart shouldn't be our fallen wants. The cry of our heart should be, I want what you want today. I want what you want today because you want better. We continue on verse nine. It says, and leaping up, look at that, leaping up. So this wasn't like a progressive healing, which by the way, a lot of like today when people do like healings and sometimes there can be like abuse with like fake healings and things like that. And if somebody can't walk and I've seen this happen, be like, well, it takes time. In scripture, it doesn't. It never does. Leaping up, happened instantly. He stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Verse 10, and recognized him, of course they recognized him, as one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And look at verse 11. I love picturing verse 11. Like there they are in the temple mount. And Luke writes that, um, Everyone ran to Solomon's porch. And we, we talked about Solomon's porch last week, but there were steps going up to the, the porch. And so Peter runs with the beggar over to the, over to the Solomon's porch. And everybody's standing there in awe. They're like, that's the guy. He's up standing up on the steps. This is the guy that we see every day at our gate. Our parents would see every day at the gate. There he is. He's standing on the steps. And he's clinging to Peter. And with that former beggar, all smiles, tears probably streaming down his face, likely shaking with joy as he embraces Peter. Verse 12, Peter starts preaching. And I love how Peter starts. Like, why are you staring at us? What are you staring at? What are you wondering about? This is the power of God. Jesus, who you crucified just down the street. But then you saw him later on. He's alive and he's working. And this man is living proof. 
The man clinging to Peter was proof. And he gives us lesson number three from a beggar. Wins are only great when leveraged for the kingdom. Your wins are only great when leveraged for the kingdom. This beggar gets it. Come on, put yourself in the beggar's, in the beggar's, I don't even know if he had shoes. Just put yourself in the beggar's situation here. Now he can walk. There's like a million things that he wants to do. He wants to go run home to his family. He wants to hold a party. Uh, He'd love to go get a job, make his very first dollar. There's games that I'm sure as a kid, he watched all the kids play in the streets. Now he can play one of those games. You know he's gonna want to. He's lived in the city for 40 years and has only seen a small percentage of it. He's he's never had the freedom to run through these streets. He wants to to run through these streets to be pure ecstasy. I'd love to take a girl on a date. But what does the beggar do? Verse nine, first thing, praising God. And then the following verses, he uses his wind to showcase how great God is. He stays for a sermon. I don't know if I would have done that. I'm not staying for a sermon. I preach sermons. I don't know if I would have stayed for a sermon. He stays there to showcase what God has done. What a lesson. That's convicting to me because our wins often, our promotions, our new jobs, children, accomplishments, we tend to leverage them for ourselves first. It's natural. I do the same thing. Bump up our standard of living right away. Let's flex this a little bit. Let's consume more. This poor beggar held to the idea of first fruits. Nah, very first goes to God. Even this first moment of being able to walk that I've dreamt of, that's going to God. That's a win that is now great because there's leverage for the kingdom. A couple of months ago, I was in I was in Berlin and I was speaking at a, a pastor's um, gathering for uh, German pastors. And after one of the, uh, one of the sessions, I there's a guy waiting for me after the session, and um, he had a very interesting vibe. He he looked like me, only thirty years older, so it was very scary, like longer gray hair, disheveled, all of that. And and he said, he's like, hey man, you want to go grab lunch? And my wife stayed home for this trip, uh, so I had like nothing to do. He's like. Sure. So we went and grabbed a meal and the guy was just a goofball hanging out with him. And he and I connected really well. We had a couple meals over a couple of days. He was a very fascinating man to talk to. Very, very eccentric guy. We usually would just talk about scripture and nothing really about our backgrounds or where we came from, just more about scripture. And, and after, after a session later on in the week, I didn't see him waiting for me like he usually would to hang out. And so I went up to one of the event people, you know, behind the stage was like, Hey, that odd guy that I, that I was hanging out with all week, where did he go? And the guy goes, oh, yeah, he's, uh, today he has a meeting with German parliament. It's like, is he, was I just hanging out with a criminal for this last, is he in trouble? Like, what's going on? He's like, no, 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 he consults governments. Are we talking about the same guy? Because like long hair, wrinkled clothes, looks disheveled, all that. He's like, yeah, we're talking about the same guy. Apparently this guy's a billionaire. I didn't, I had no idea. He had made major success in Norwegian oil and international business, and he, he consults bigwigs and pumps his money into bringing the church to life in dark Europe. So he lives on very, very little. And him making money, not flaunting, is like, okay, that's cool. I respect him for that. But like finding out what he does with his wins, is just like, oh my goodness, that's greatness. Wins are great to enjoy. I'm not saying you shouldn't enjoy them. Enjoy your wins. Enjoy the promotions. Enjoy the raises. Enjoy when God heals you. And enjoy the, the influence that you get. I'm not promoting like taking a vow of poverty. But biblically speaking, wins become great when leveraged for eternity. They're enjoyed for eternity when leveraged for the kingdom. And what's so beautiful about this is if you look at your notes, if you just look at your notes for a second, even if you didn't take notes, just look at your notes for a second. The beauty of these is that each of these points is brought to you by Jesus Christ. 
Like to me, this is just wildly beautiful. You remember in Acts chapter three, by this time, we're here right now, Jesus has been physically gone for a few weeks. He's already ascended to heaven from the hill that's overlooking the temple. But just before he ascended, at the bottom of that hill, he sweat drops of blood, agonizing to the Father in prayer. What was he praying? He was praying point number two. God, let this cup pass from me. It's not my will, but yours be done. It's not my agenda, it's your agenda, even if it costs me the cross. This is not what I want, but I want what you want. That was his prayer. The very next day, not far from that garden, he went to the cross and he took your sin and he took my sin and he took my shame and he took my guilt and he took all those past failures. He nailed them to the cross with himself. Nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. The blood-soaked cross means that I get a do-over. And three days later, he walked out of an empty tomb defeating death, history's greatest win. And yet that win was leveraged for us. His victory is our victory. His win is our salvation. So like these notes right here, these aren't just something like, oh, I just came up with. No, these beautiful truths are packed in Acts 3, but they were first modeled by Jesus himself. To follow Jesus means you get a do-over. There's new life ahead of you. Those past failures, those haunting memories of the old life, they have no grip on you. His win is greater than any loss you've had. So go forward, run hard, run with confidence, put yourself out there, strain ahead, get back up, give it another go, get back out there. And any little win you experience, do what your big brother did for us. You leverage those little wins for the great, precious kingdom of God. Thanks again for listening. Again, for more content, just scroll down to the podcast description and follow the link. Before we call it, would you be kind enough to share this podcast? It goes a long way. Blessings on you today. See you next time.